Koinonia, Christian fellowship, communion with God and with fellow Christians. Koinonia, an association of people who share common beliefs and activities. This is Koinonia. This is Community. And now, your host, Tom Brown. Well, hello, everyone. This is uh, Al Fadi and uh, filling in here for um, uh, Tom. Uh, uh, we ask your prayers for him. Um, it was uh, uh, something that uh, kept him away from joining me today. So uh, we pray for uh, his uh, good health. Uh, today we are going to talk about a very interesting uh, topic. Um, my hope behind this topic is to bring really um, uh, some sense of um, confidence and peace to our minds in light of the recent um, terror attacks uh, that have been on the rise, at least in Europe or even here in San Bernardino, for instance, the latest one of those. I wanted to share with you today about another side of ISIS that uh, probably the media uh, doesn't uh, uh, shed a lot of lights on or doesn't focus a whole lot on as they should. And that's the idea uh, or the reality that there is a lot of fighters of ISIS uh, that are flooding ISIS, actually, leaving ISIS, defecting, uh, basically. And uh, today we are going to be focusing on this. But as always, I would like to uh, utilize um, uh, technology and we'll uh, be listening to video clips that will uh, uh, basically lead us into uh, discussions uh, related to this matter. With that uh, said, we'll start with uh, a uh, first clip here uh, and we'll take it from there. The praises of a Muslim utopia, or is it? The caliphate is experiencing a wave of defections, people who say ISIS is killing rather than protecting Muslims. But how much of a difference do these defections make on the battlefield? The Institute of Radicalization and Political Violence at King's College here in London monitors these militants and has collected the stories of 58 ISIS defectors. Peter Newman wrote the report that gives a fascinating insight into this sect. Welcome back to the program. Thank you, Priscilla. So this is, these are not new defections, but you have collated and analysed what they're all saying. What is the big takeaway? Uh, exactly. So we knew that people were defecting from ISIS, but we didn't know exactly how big of a phenomenon this was. So we started collecting these stories. We came up with 58, 58 people who have defected and who have spoken out against ISIS after leaving. The important thing here is that the number of defections seems to be increasing. Two-thirds of these defections were this year alone. One-third was only in the last three months, which, if anything, indicates that people are perhaps feeling more confident in coming out, but perhaps also that some of the shininess of the caliphate is wearing off and that, that some of the fault lines are becoming obvious. So let me just put to you, then, some of these interviews that our Arwa mm. Damon has collected, as well as our other correspondents. But, for instance, talking about a defector, she spoke to a man recently who said the following. I saw a 70-year-old sheikh killed in front of me. The Islamic State can't continue like this. There are a lot of youth who are joining, 14, 15 years old. Maybe my voice can make them think again. Basically, uh, what you have just heard right now is um, uh, an interview uh, that was uh, done uh, with one of those ISIS defectors. And um, as you can see, uh, or I should say here in this case, that uh, he is giving you uh, a reason why he himself decided to leave. When we come back after our break, 
We will talk about a number of those reasons why uh, ISIS fighters are leaving ISIS with the hope that this will give us all a uh, good Christmas presents to uh, give us peace and realize that uh, we are winning the war, uh, but uh, our Lord uh, is on the throne and uh, as he always was and will continue to be, and we need to set our mind at peace. Welcome back to Koinonia on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. I'm your host, Al Fadi, and uh, filling in for Tom Brown. And um, if uh, you uh, listen to the beginning of the show, I mentioned that we will be talking today about a very important and hopefully encouraging topic, and that's that there are defectors who are leaving ISIS. Something that uh, I believe that the media should be focusing on a lot more than uh, terrifying and scaring people, because um, obviously this is something that will bring at least a sense of hope. In fact, uh, before we talk about why uh, are they leaving ISIS, uh, maybe we should uh, talk a little bit about why did they join in the first place. Well, there is a lot of information that is available, usually on the net and YouTube, uh, propaganda videos and many other uh, uh, written articles, uh, even by, uh, or social media, I should say, and posts by ISIS and ISIS sympathizers that uh, encourages youngsters who typically uh, are between the ages of 18 to mid-30s, that's uh, uh, the vast majority of those ISIS uh, fighters, uh, the age group that they come from, Um, it encourages them to join for a variety of reasons. And um, some of those reasons, uh, sometimes that uh, many of them feel they were disenfranchised, uh, they were not uh, given an opportunity uh, in their own homeland uh, to get a decent job, uh, uh, to uh, to work maybe, um, uh, and do the things that they enjoy doing, to earn a, a living, to be able to get married and have a, a household. That's one of the reasons. But really, there is other reason uh, that's probably contributing to this. That's the need to belong. Many times we hear that uh, uh, those uh, who are lone wolves who committed uh, Uh, acts in the name of ISIS or being uh, at least uh, sympathizers of ISIS or inspired by ISIS are lone wolves, uh, are loners who um, uh, basically don't have a social life per se um, that enables them to uh, have a sense of belonging in a community. They may have some friends, but in general, they feel like they still lack in something. And that's one of the propagandas ISIS used. For instance, uh, there is a video earlier um, in uh, 2014, a propaganda video uh, that was uh, shown by ISIS, which uh, uh, it uh, it talks about a Canadian who converted to Islam. His name is Andre Pollen. And in there, uh, Andre, who is featured in this propaganda YouTube video, talks about uh, himself uh, in the past and uh, stating things like, before I came to he uh, came here to ICE, uh, to Syria, he says, uh, I had money, I had a family, I had good friends. It wasn't like I was some uh, anarchist or somebody who just wanted to destroy the world and kill everybody. I was a regular person. Point that um, 
Poland, who re- later named himself Abu Muslim, uh, that he's trying to hammer down is that there is a place for everybody. Uh, in fact, he later stated that we need the engineers, we need doctors, we need professionals. Every person can contrib- contribute something to the Islamic State. In fact, later, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi himself, who declared himself to be the caliph of ISIS, in his um, one and only public speech that he gave uh, right after the declaration of the um, caliphate in July of 2014, appearing in a mosque, uh, repeated the same thing, that uh, there is a place for everybody, that they need uh, the professionals to come in and join the caliphate. Now, um, uh, there, there are. This is basically a representation of some external, external needs, but there are also internal, really factors that, uh, in my view, contribute to why people joined ISIS, and that's the need to satisfy spiritual desires to please a god, to please a god that these fighters believe in, believe in with all their heart. They're willing to do whatever it takes full submission to the point of death and sacrificing themselves. These are commands that are found in the pages, of course, of the Quran and the model of the Prophet of Islam. So when they convert, usually that's the probably the first thing that they've been exposed to. And as a sponge, they soak in this information. And pretty soon they realize that uh, I'm not really a good Muslim so far. Therefore, I must uh, adhere to these teachings. And... Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of those uh, clerks out there that want to emphasize to them that this is the only way for you to be a good Muslim. Uh, Granted, uh, we do not want to use a broad brush here and say all Muslims are like this. There are many Muslims that don't adhere to this, don't sympathize with these kind of teachings, or maybe like to reinterpret them. Uh, I'm not here to debate right now how we should interpret those and if it is applicable to all or not. But I'm here to talk about reasons why people are joining, and that will be uh, something that will lead us into why are they leaving. So before I talk about why are they leaving, let us listen to another clip. Clip number one. ISIS fighters are being recruited from Western countries, and tonight Clarissa Ward has a rare interview with a man who joined ISIS and then broke free. He insisted we hide his face and alter his voice for this report. A lot of people, when they come, have a lot of uh, enthusiasm about what they've seen online, what they've seen on YouTube. They see it as something a lot grander than, than what the reality is. It's not all military praise or victories, you know. Abu Ibrahim is one of thousands of Westerners who have traveled to Syria to fight jihad. A convert to Islam, he wanted the chance to live under strict Islamic Sharia law. So he joined the most extreme group there, ISIS. During his six months with the militants, he saw crucifixions. In December, he witnessed the stoning to death of a couple convicted of adultery. He was done publicly, there were many hundreds of people there. Seeing someone die is not something anyone probably would want to see, but having the, the actual Sharia established is what many Muslims look forward to. It doesn't strike you as medieval? No. Brutal? It's harsh, it's, um, it's real, but it's uh, Sharia. 
Life for Western jihadists under ISIS rule is almost completely subsidized. They provide housing, food, salary, an allowance. How much? Initially, it was approximately $50 a month. Uh, during winter, it went up to $100, so people could purchase uh, warmer clothing or items for the house. So you're completely taken care of? Yes. The bare necessities were given. But there is one condition. Once you join ISIS, it is virtually impossible to leave. The restrictions of leaving are difficult. It felt a bit like a prison in that respect. Honestly, what would happen if you were caught by ISIS trying to leave the Islamic State? If I was caught, I would probably be imprisoned and questioned. Why is that? Why Are they paranoid about spying or yeah. they just don't want people to leave? They're worried about um, infiltration. Those found guilty of spying are executed. Despite the risk, Abu Ibrahim began to look for a way out. He was increasingly disillusioned by the executions of Western aid workers and journalists. He missed his family and felt bored. Jihad wasn't what he thought it would be. I don't think I miss it. I miss friends I made and brotherhood, but uh, ISIS itself, no. Carissa, we almost never hear from these people. How did you find this man? How did you verify his story? Well, I first came across Abu Ibrahim on social media, although now all of his accounts have been shut down. And we started to message regularly for more than seven months online. And I was able to corroborate his story by talking to this uh, network of foreign fighters inside Syria who I communicate with who also knew Abu Ibrahim. Clarissa Ward, one of our authorities on Syria. Thank you, Clarissa. If you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to Konania on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. I'm your host, Al Fadi, filling in for Tom Brown. And uh, we were listening right now to a, uh, a video interview that was done by a reporter uh, with uh, one of those ISIS defectors. And the topic uh, of our discussion uh, in today's ep- uh, show is going to be about uh, 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 defectors from ISIS uh, who originally joined Uh, for uh, whatever reason, and uh, later they became disillusioned and realized that uh, whatever they had in mind wasn't met. In this case, this interview with uh, the so-called Abu Ibrahim, uh, he realized that things were not going the way he expected them to be. And uh, that was his reason why he wanted to leave. But uh, it's an interesting thing, by the way, if you caught what he was saying, uh, that he still believes in the ideology itself. It's just uh, the fact that he didn't think ISIS uh, was implementing the ideology according to his own understanding. So he's still wide open to probably try it again if there is a different group tomorrow that will be uh, um, established. So this is one of the dangers, of course, why ISIS defectors sometimes are looked upon as a uh, uh, a threat to national security. Uh, in my humble uh, opinion, we should really utilize them uh, incentivize them and uh, basically you um, uh, talk to them. Uh, to get more insights on what's going on on the ground, uh, since uh, ISIS definitely has a an iron fist and a tight grip that prevents others from the outside to get a whole lot of info. And it causes, of course, uh, um, a great deal of danger, even to those uh, from within ISIS who decide to leave. They might end up uh, losing their life. Now, uh, what are uh, other reasons uh, uh, ISIS fighters might be leaving? Well, you'll be surprised. He mentioned that they get paid between 50 to $60, and then in the winter they pay him $100. Well, just recently in September uh, uh, of this year, in 2015, uh, there has been a, 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 uh, an article that was written on Express, and uh, you can find it online. 
and it says that ISIS exodus, hundreds of fighters leave brutal terror group after wages are slashed. In fact, it says there that the wages were slashed by almost 50%. In fact, even uh, the, the report suggested even more than that. Uh, they used to be er- earning 260 pounds, and now they're earning 65 pounds. Well, that's uh, definitely a sad story, uh, I guess. Um, but I'm thankful. Uh, it seems like whatever we're doing, at least the coalition, is working by putting a lot of economical pressure on ISIS. And therefore, uh, this is causing some of the uh, militants who are joining them to begin to rethink um, whether they want to remain uh, as part of ISIS or uh, flee, uh, basically, the organization. So uh, it's obvious then that uh, there was an economical element why they joined in the first place. In fact, if you um, uh, look into a number of those reasons why they joined in the first place, you discover that economical promises were at the top of that list. We're approaching um, another break. When we come back, we will continue this discussion about the ISIS defectors. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Al-Fadi, filling in for Tom Brown. You can catch this entire, by the way, topic uh, on my own show, Let Us Reason, on KPXQ 1360. Welcome back to Coin and E on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. I'm your host, Al Fadi, filling in here today for Tom Brown. And the topic we are discussing on our show has to do with the ISIS defectors. And uh, I, I did mention earlier uh, about some of the reasons why they joined in the first place. And we will continue to talk about some of those reasons. And also we listened to a number of clips that uh, uh, were done related to those who left ISIS uh, to... Um, counter basically some of the reasons why they joined. But really, uh, we want to also talk about a very important topic, which is related uh, to this as well. And that's the idea of uh, the fact that uh, not all Muslims are on board with ISIS and its ideology, for instance. Now, uh, as I stated earlier, I'm not here to debate right now whether this is Islamic or non-Islamic. That's a different show. But um, we know for a fact that there is a majority of uh, Muslims, especially in the West, that distance themselves from the ISIS ideology. Some of them even are calling on for reform. For instance, we have uh, Dr. Zodi Jasser, who is well known. Uh, He is the head of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. Just recently after the attack in San Bernardino, for instance, there was a piece on uh, uh, Phoenix New Times uh, that talked about him and a group of imams in December 4th, basically, Uh, At least that's what the article stated. Uh, Allegedly, uh, at that time, they uh, came forward with what is called the Muslim Reform Movement. Well, with me here uh, today to talk about this, at least in this segment uh, of our show, uh, my dear uh, brother and friend, uh, Vocab Malone, who is uh, on Urban Theologian Radio. But before we talk to Vocab, I want you to listen to this. 
that has nothing to do with my prophet. Please just stop it. It doesn't make any sense. That's not the message he sent. That's not what he meant. That's not why he came. So you can claim as much as you want to, but I assure you the man I follow was not the same. See, I know a man who forbade the cutting down of a plant, who even spoke against those who had burnt an ant. So why is it that I simply can't understand how we claim to follow the same man? I mean, I know a man who forbade us from harming the innocent, saying he who does so would not only be prohibited from paradise, but he would not even smell its scent. So please tell me how what you're doing has anything to do with the message that he sent. This is the man who forbade us from even scaring cattle with a knife, saying you have no right to let the animal die twice. And when he was asked for advice, he'd reply, don't get angry, don't get angry, don't get angry, repeating it thrice. See, I know a man who called to patience first, even to those who had treated him the worst. And when he was asked to invoke Allah's wrath, he said, I was not sent to curse, but rather as a mercy to the earth. Matter of fact, the entire universe, meaning everything that was made. See, this is a man whom the clouds would rush to shade, a man to whom the trees would sway and the birds would flock to seek his aid. For they knew he was a man of justice, a man who would never betray, a man who could be trusted even by those who had wanted him slain. Sianus bin Malik served him for 10 years and not once had he heard him complain. For he would. Well, Vocab, um, welcome aboard, brother. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me on, Alfadi. Well, Vocab, you know what we were playing right now. In fact, uh, that was something that you uh, hinted to us about, and thank you for bringing it to our attention. This is uh, uh, on the Dean Show, uh, a very popular show, at least on YouTube. People can go and watch it. It's uh, from a Muslim perspective. And apparently this uh, a per- this person that we've heard right now uh, was conducting a poem defending the fact that the Prophet of Islam doesn't promote any of these things that ISIS, for instance, and Al-Qaeda and Al-Shabaab and the jihadis in general promoting. Is that correct? Yeah, so that's a slam poetry piece, and it's very well done if you look at it, I think artistically and aesthetically. And the main point of it is the things happening right now specifically that ISIS is doing have nothing to do with the Prophet of Islam that I uh, worship or uh, follow and adhere. That's the main thesis of that poem, and it's getting around. Uh, more and more places are actually picking it up and showing it. So it's I don't it's not quite viral yet, but it's definitely got a lot of shares and it's been picking up steam lately. Well, you know, Vocab, now that you mentioned it, it's going to go viral without a doubt, brother. You know, right. you're a very popular person, so. Oh just yeah, say sure. That. Yeah, now everyone's going to watch it. But look, here's here's what I want to say about this video in relationship to ISIS and what it represents. Everyone may not agree with me, and I understand that, okay. But I want people to consider this. Not all Muslims think like ISIS explicitly, nor do they secretly root for ISIS. Now, it is true within the larger Muslim world, there are more ISIS-type sympathizers than I wish. That is true. But... But we have to actually, I feel, give some charitable interpretations 
when people tell us what they believe and not think that everyone is secretly out to get us and lying and things of that nature. And I think firsthand accounts when you get to know people will further back that up. So I, here's what I would say. I believe that this man really believes something akin to the interpretation of Muhammad's words and deeds that he is giving in this video. But it's also very difficult for me to see how he can be familiar with the sources of Islam. And the reason he must be somewhat familiar is because if he wrote the poem, which I think he did, it has a number of sources in the Islamic literature, not only from the Quran, but something called the Hadith. Now, that means he knows some of the other things Muhammad did. And I guess it's hard for me to see how he could say, here's my interpretation of Muhammad, but then cast out the other ones that would not be so favorable. He probably has a westernized, self-almost-generated interpretive grid by which he can say these are not authentic and these other more favorable ones are. But I don't think most Muslims will go along that program, especially Muslims outside of the West. And so uh, I think the video is important for people to see, to at least understand that perspective is out there. Yeah. So, Volkap, uh, you've mentioned something very interesting, that uh, the fact that he may be not fully aware of Islam primary sources, especially the Hadith, even though he might have alluded to some of them. Okay, so the, the Hadith, by the way, a quick uh, and, and a crash uh, course here for people who are listening to us. It's one of the primary sources of Islam. You have the Quran. That is considered to be the word of Allah, the God of Islam. And then you have the hadith, the sayings and the traditions of the prophet of Islam. So let me read you this. The hadith is in collections and uh, Sunni collections have two pri- uh, two basically superior uh, hadith collections. One is called Bukhari. The other one is called Muslim. And in there you have the uh, different categories of what the prophet taught or uh, did, for instance, and were reported to us by those who collected him and narrated him. So I'm going to read something here. Bukhari, Hadith, uh, basically, uh, uh, book 52, Hadith number 220, says this. Allah's apostle, this is a reference to Muhammad, said, I have been made victorious with terror. There's another Hadith by Abu Dawood uh, collection. Book 14, Hadith number 2527, the Prophet said, Striving in the path of Allah, meaning jihad here, is incumbent on you along with every ruler, whether he is uh, a pious or impious. Here's another hadith. The messenger of Allah said, I have been commanded to fight against people so long as they do not declare that there is no God but Allah, the God of Islam. This is found in Muslim Collection, Book 1, Hadith number 30. In Bukhari, Book 52, Hadith 73, Allah's Apostle says, Know that paradise is under the shades of swords. So, Vokab, how did this gentleman miss all of these? Well, the way that I've seen people do it is something like this. Whenever those types of things are brought up, they will say, I do not consider those sayings about Muhammad to be authentic. And potentially that's a possible feasible out for a Muslim who wants to not believe those things about Muhammad, because it is true that there's hundreds upon hundreds, actually thousands of collections about what Muhammad said and did. And it's actually a science where Muslim scholars kind of pick through, based upon certain criteria, what they consider to be authentic. 
And so it's possible a Muslim could say those types of things. But from the outside looking in, two of the most well-established collections of Hadith sayings, Bukhari, Sahih al-Muslim, others, they clearly portray words and deeds which are not favorable. And so it takes a lot for a Muslim to say that something in those collections are not authentic. They're really going against their mainstream scholars on that point. And so it's very difficult. But they, they can do it, but they end up, it ends up looking very capricious and arbitrary. And what it looks like is that westernized Muslims basically want to believe the best about Muhammad they can, and it's almost like when you hear something bad that you know did something, you say, well, I can't believe they would never do that. Maybe that's kind of the denial that's going on. Whenever they see these words and deeds from Muhammad, they just continually say, well, he didn't do that, he didn't do that. And then, you know, in the video he brought out the nice things that Muhammad did. The problem is, though, if you were going to weigh the amount of text, you know, let's say you're going to put them on two scales, and which one make Muhammad look like a nice man, and which ones make Muhammad look less than charitable, it really seems like the side that makes Muhammad look like a not-so-nice man, a violent man, a mean man most of the time, it seems like that side is going to win. It's going to weigh heavier. And indeed, that's why it has such a strong driving push within the Islamic world right now, because really I think the textual foundation, the historical foundation, is sadly on their side. And you know, um, uh, basically, uh, you hit the nail um, right on the head. And by the way, there's someone who took the time, actually, to uh, do these statistics. You can go to the Center for Political Islam website, and you can see a lot of those statistics related to what Vukov is talking about in terms of what weighs heavier in the teaching of the uh, Prophet and uh, the Quran and so on and so forth. But um, I'm playing here the devil's advocate here, and I can tell you, uh, vocab, that ISIS and the likes of ISIS exist because they're frustrated with Muslims who reinterpret those primary sources. Yep. Uh, we are approaching our uh, next break. Um, you're listening to Koinonia Radio, uh, thir- uh, Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. I'm your host, Al-Fadi, and joining me here right now for this segment, our dear friend Vocab Malone, who have been with me many times before. And uh, when we come back, we'll continue our discussion related to ISIS and, uh, in particular, uh, the Reformation of Islam and ISIS defectors as well. Back to Koinonia on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. I'm your host, Al Fadi, sitting in, uh, filling in here, I should say, for Tom Brown. And uh, uh, before our break, uh, I had my dear friend uh, Vocab Malone, and we were talking about uh, the possibility of maybe uh, reforming Islam. And then we listened to a Muslim who conducted a poem claiming that um, uh, those ISIS claims and the jihadis that the Prophet of Islam and his uh, prophetic way leads into what they're doing. Uh, the claim that uh, that is not true. And then we, uh, I basically laid out uh, some hadith that we uh, uh, read 
uh, that contradict what the uh, the poet is saying. In fact, uh, the Prophet of Islam does teach on violent jihad and terrorism. But nevertheless, I can say that I'm excited that there is a movement, at least from among the uh, moderate Muslims, to uh, supposedly reform Islam. In fact, uh, in uh, an article that I mentioned earlier in uh, uh, on Phoenix New Times that uh, had to do with a recent declaration uh, to reform Islam, basically, by Dr. Zodi Jasser and a number of Islamic clerks uh, that met in Washington, D.C., and later, actually, they took their declaration uh, of uh, uh, the Muslim Reform Movement declaration, they took that, and they nailed it on a door of a mosque in there, almost uh, symbolic of what Martin Luther did when he... Uh, started at the Reformation. But, Vokab, let me ask you this question. Uh, you know, when we talk about the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, which you and I did an entire show on, uh, we're definitely talking about something completely different than we, we say that Reformation of Islam. Is that true? Yes. The Reformation's big cry was going back to the sources. And, of course, the source was Scripture, Sola Scriptura, is the Latin phrase they used. And so it wasn't a breaking away from tradition in the sense of what, what should have been at the forefront of Christianity. It was a breaking away from, you know, man's tradition, of course, from Rome. But what I mean is it wasn't breaking away from the center of the creeds. It wasn't breaking away from the center of orthodoxy. It was a return to classical Christianity. That was what the Reformation was supposed to be. When people talk about a Reformation of Islam, if we go back to the sources of Islam, remember, they're not the same as Christianity. People have to remember all religions are truly not the same. If we go back to the founding documents, if you will, of Islam, we actually don't want that, because that will result in what's called a Salafist interpretation, and our extreme version of Salafism is what you have with ISIS. So there's not really – that would be what a Muslim Reformation would look like. Most people, when they say they want a Reformation within Islam, what they really mean is they actually want Islam to be, quote, modernized. And, in fact, you heard that in that interview snippet you played earlier. She said, doesn't this strike you as medieval? Right. Think about it. Out of all the things she could have said, she could have said immoral, against your religion, uh, not very Muslim-like – it's something like that, but she said it doesn't strike you as medieval. It's interesting. Like so, she would understand Islam as needing to be updated into the modern world, and that would be the way to escape the sort of maze of violence that it's in now. And also, as you know, uh, you and I are aware of the fact that in church history, during the medieval age, the church just went south. At least the Catholic Church was persecuting those that stood against it. And uh, sometimes the liberal agenda is like to, to almost to taint the picture as if the church and Islam are one and the same, and there is a hope for reformation for Islam. So what I heard you say then, that it's impossible to reform Islam, would it be safe to say we can deform Islam in this case? If uh, some of these folks are going to be successful, it'll be more through deforming Islam than reforming Islam. Let me give you an example. This is also from the Phoenix New Times and the reason why they're covering a lot of it probably is because Dr. Jasser is locally based. He's in Scottsdale, He's a, he, as far as where he lives. Um, this was published December 14th. It says that Muslim reform movement in Zudi Jasser declared jihad 
against jihad. And then one of the people involved with him in this is Asra Nomani, and she wrote a book called Standing Alone in Mecca, An American Woman's Struggle for the Soul of Islam. Notice how she identifies herself as an American woman. I would say that's probably where her overriding values come more than from Islam. But let me show you what she says in this article. We need to have a progressive, forward-thinking interpretation of Islam, one that represents opening hearts, minds, and doors in our Muslim world. We need to do it for our children, and we need to do it for future generations so they can live in peace and harmony, end quote. Now, notice that's, that's, that's a little more pragmatic than it is in principled, but let me continue on with what she's uh, ascribed, uh, what, she's, uh, what they say she said next. Quote, that's what we struggle with. So many of the mainstream organizations and leaders won't acknowledge there is a violent interpretation of jihad that we haven't challenged. Now, before I read this next quote, I just want everyone to take in everything she said so far. And then listen to this. Um, the article says, she claims that in Islam, daughters get one half of the inheritance price of men and can only serve as one half of a witness to a ceremony. By the way, that's true. Now, listen to this last quote. This is very important. Quote, in order to say men and women are equal... You have to be ready to depart from the literal reading of the Quran. Not everyone is willing to do that, end quote. Hmm. That's very straightforward, uh, of course. Um, that's what I meant by deforming Islam. Yep. You cannot really say we're reforming Islam because that's a wrong labeling. Reforming, going back to the basics, to the foundational sources, the prime sources, uh, primary source of Islam, which teaches actually uh, what ISIS is doing. ISIS calls its way, the prophetic way, in reference to the prophet of Islam. In fact, ISIS will be frustrated uh, with articles like this simply because they know very well that it's not uh, presenting the spirit of Islam. I'm thankful, though, on the other hand, that there are those like Dr. Jasser and uh, his group that are willing to stand up publicly and declare jihad on jihad. And we really need to just uh, be praying for them and uh, for their safety, brother. As you know, um, you know, I, although I commend the movement, uh, I really extend an invitation to all of them to accept our Lord uh, Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because he is the King of Peace. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the one that will give that ultimate peace. And he is the ultimate reformer, of course, of uh, the human soul. Yes, ultimately, we pray for folks like Dr. Jasser and Nomani, that instead of trying to reform something that really is unsalvageable, they would find new sources, a new source document, a new person upon which to whom base the source of their peace. And just like as we read in Micah 5, the shepherd Messiah, the shepherd king, is prophesied there, Micah 5, 2 especially, that person, Jesus Christ, is the sole source of peace. And I pray that they would see that as they really realize the, the emptiness and the wrong foundation that they have within Islam. Because it would seem like to me folks like this are realizing there's some problems and they're even willing to go to bat, to, um, they're willing to go to battle over it. Um, it seems like perhaps those would be people who, who would be open to seeing someone else instead of Muhammad as a source of peace. I pray that they would. But in the meantime, in the meantime, I think that we Christians sometimes will say, well, where's the Muslims, you know, uh, standing up and, and saying we don't agree with this? Well, 
when we do see them, we sh- then we should. Uh, I think we should say, okay, that's good, and not say, well, uh, you're actually being fake. You actually are secretly a terrorist, and you're just doing that for show. It because that puts the Muslim in a position where they can't win. You know, we tell them stand up for justice, and then when they do, we say they're being disingenuous. So. Part of loving your neighbor, I think, is showing a charity, a charitable interpretation on on a man like Dr. Jasser's deeds. Even if we ultimately want to call him to repentance and say, "Look, you're trying to fix the unfixable. You're trying to salvage the unsalvageable," and that's ultimately because he's building his house upon the sand and not the rock. Amen, brother. Well, uh, Vocab, I want to thank you, brother, for taking time to join me here. And uh, hopefully you can continue to listen to this show, and uh, you and I will probably do another one on topics related to this. Uh, With me was uh, our dear friend uh, Vocab Malone, and you can catch Vocab on Urban Theologian Radio. Now, let me uh, uh, go back again to the topic we started with, and that's to give us some hope that some fighters from ISIS are leaving. Let's listen to clip number two. This is a 58 defectors from ISIS. Until now, many such reports have been rare because defectors are afraid to speak out, lest their families or they themselves be harmed. With some new insight into the brutal practices of the terrorist group, we wanted to know, why are ISIS recruits leaving? Well, for about 4,000 Western recruits and many more from the Middle East and North Africa, it's not quite the paradise that they were promised. Young people are tempted with offers of adventure, money, guns, and glory. One defector recounted how an ISIS recruiter in his area promised sports cars and multiple wives. He was also told that he could return to Turkey at any time after joining. But many are not prepared for the harsh reality. The lack of food, clean water, and electricity result in a quality of life that can be difficult to cope with. Promised luxury goods never materialize, and the penalties for speaking out or running away are severe. Death by decapitation is a common practice for any perceived spies or defectors. ISIS recruits that join primarily to support Islam and the Caliphate find themselves disappointed too. Defectors say that corruption, racism, and lies are rampant within ISIS's leadership, and officials don't abide by Islamic teachings. Reports of ISIS soldiers taking young women as sexual slaves goes against what many Muslim scholars say is a universal consensus forbidding slavery in Islam. Instead of fighting the Syrian government, often rebels fight amongst themselves and other Muslims. Defectors report that this violence seems wrong, counterproductive, and religiously illegitimate. Finally, ISIS soldiers are also choosing to defect because they aren't prepared for the violence. It's reported that Westerners in particular are used as cannon fodder, and two of the interviewed defectors left when they were chosen to be suicide bombers. In an NPR interview, one 26-year-old former ISIS member said, ISIS wants to kill everyone who says no. To others, the multitude of rapes and beheadings are shocking and completely contrary to the advertised idea of the ISIS caliphate. Reports allege that ISIS is having mounting problems with defectors, and one ex-recruit has says he prefers jail in Germany to freedom in Syria. Global lawmakers, especially in the West, are being encouraged to protect defectors and interview them so that other vulnerable people can learn from their experiences. The recent reports detailing ISIS defectors have been called a powerful tool to counter ISIS propaganda. One of ISIS's most common strategies to assert power is to take hostages. To learn more about this process, watch this video. Many countries, the United States in particular, refuse to pay for the return of their citizens. White House officials have argued that paying ransoms only encourages more kidnappings. In fact, until this policy was relaxed in June 2015, victims' families could be criminally prosecuted for organizing ransom payments. Thanks for watching TestTube News.
Well, welcome back to Koinonia uh, on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. I'm your host, Al Fadi, filling in uh, for Tom Brown. And today's show was on um, the uh, topic of uh, ISIS defectors and also the possibility, if any, that Islam could be reformed or, as I termed it, deformed. And join me today uh, in the previous segment, uh, our dear friend Vocab Malone. Uh, but um, we are approaching the end of this show. And in closing, I want to just uh, reiterate that there is hope. Uh, the Lord is on the throne. Uh, he is the God uh, that is sovereign over all things. And we need to put our trust and hope in him. We cannot trust man. We cannot put our hope on anybody other than our Lord himself. And the scripture tells us in Colossians 1.27 that Christ in you, your hope of glory. This is the hope that we have And I want to extend this invitation uh, to my Muslim people to put their hope in Christ and Christ alone. The scripture said of him that uh, God, in Christ basically, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's who Christ is to all of us. As believers in Christ, you are the followers of the Prince of Peace the one and only who can give you that hope of glory. Thank you uh, for listening to Koinonia on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. Uh, I've had really a great time here and the pleasure of uh, serving you. I'm your host, Al Fadi, uh, was filling in for Tom Brown, but you can catch me also on my own show right here on KPXQ 1360. It is called Let Us Reason, a Christian Muslim dialogue with Al Fadi, and it's usually aired on Saturdays at 9.30 in the morning. Thank you, and Lord bless you. Thank mm-hmm. you.